We are Encountering Silence. Encountering Silence is made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. Please visit patreon.com slash encountering silence to learn more about how you can be part of the circle and share in our efforts to bring silence into our all too noisy world. This is the second part of a two part episode. To hear part one, listen to last week's episode and then come back for this one. There was, a, there was a quote in that book that I was really drawn to, the opening line from chapter three, and you say, if I could put what I believe about God in fewer than 200 words, it would be this. Jesus is the way for us to shift from violence to healing. And of course, you go on and say many more profound things, but I don't know why that struck me so deeply. I think because of the simplicity of it and just acknowledging that that's possible. I'm also reminded of I remember Jim Forrest, a peace activist, Jim Forrest, uh, said his, his friend Dan Berrigan once said to him that love does not exclude outrage. So I'm curious, first of all, what you think about that, perhaps, and then it's just this the energy inside of us after, I mean, just to put it blatantly, after that election and everything we see in this world and the violence that we see, both in terms of you know, hate speech and bullying. I mean, that's certainly violent as well as physical violence and, and so on. What, how, how, what does one do with that energy, that outrage? Well, that was, I did writing that book. Mm-hmm. But your question is, what would be the teaching about outrage? Mm. In other words, what's the wisdom from tradition? You can't deny it. You can't, uh, uh, well, here's the teaching without preaching. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, it is an indicator and it's a human dynamic and yet to act uh, we can't trust acting out of rage or anger Mm. or any other uh, dynamic except acting out what the Holy Spirit prompts us to do Mm -hmm. with a calm, clear, directed mind Mm -hmm. and because we can export our rage, our anger and it just creates more yeah. the same yeah bigger fire uh, but you're on to I'm going to affirm you in your podcast here the way through to this is through solitude silence mm. and praxis you know stillness yeah. and then in the stillness you know what action to take and you come in and you take it um, and you receive whatever happens but you come from that center of the heart rather than the rage mm-hmm. uh, of between your eyes mm-hmm. uh, I want to add even another thing that we are in a domain, and and I don't like to use the word evil, but there is a domain here of restlessness, a global bad mood. There's a new dynamic here that we're all struggling with Mm -hmm. uh, that's causing a lot of harm. Mm -hmm. And the quote you mentioned is, Jesus is the way out of that harm, Mm -hmm. because Jesus has been there, that that death on the cross, Jesus has righted, R-I-G-H-D-E-D, Everything when he says mm. breathes out and it is done is consummated. Jesus has done it all. So again, this is mystical, but it's actual. You join your suffering with the the outpouring of blood and water of Jesus' side, 
and and then through Jesus, you are given the opportunity to carry the cross in whatever way you should, mm. and with with you know, and maybe it's just waiting upon the word, or maybe it's doing some symbolic action, or sometimes it's writing a book or doing a podcast or whatever. Mm-hmm. But it'll be given without that outrage. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah, I love that. I'm going to ask one more question and then let's add the guys in, if that's okay with you. Sure. And I have another tune I want to play. Sure. If you want to play that now. You... Okay. Or, or if you want one more. Let me play the tune. Okay. And then, you know, because you, you have formal ways of closing this out. This is a song that, that the artist wrote, the one that did the paintings. And she's the artist of the book cover. Yes. Mm-hmm. For Renouncing Violence. Mm-hmm. Mm. I was able to step in her um, her painting room, I guess. A little yes. studio, a little. It's, and there's just beautiful, beautiful, colorful paintings everywhere. So it's not every day that you get to, I get to sit down with someone as wonderful as you. And thank you so much for inviting me for prayer and for lunch. So this next question I want to ask, first I want to, I want to say with the people listening that one of the stories told to me at lunch was about a sister Meg coming back from a trip where the Dalai Lama was and um, she was sitting down with the sisters and, and talking about a meal she went out for and you know just she was just like no big deal yeah it was just the Dalai Lama and Richard Gere <laughs> <laughs> and it was it was mm. quite a kick but I'm just curious about in all your in a religious work. Have you seen a lot of similarities across different faiths and religions of silence and of the importance of perhaps silence and solitude? Again, this is the attraction to the East. The East uh, had a way of keeping it alive mm. and training for that the inner work. And um, we did more outer work, uh, social uh, engagement and all the institutions for charity care in the West. But the East did a lot more interior work uh, mm-hmm. of training the mind away from the afflictions and le- leading to greater be- equanimity and uh, imperturbability and you know clarity of their their uh, minds. But when I found that we had it too, we just lost it. That's all. Mm-hmm. By seven hundred, we lost it. Mm-hmm. So it's now coming back through meditation training. Uh, but the the big difference, I would say, that we need to uh, differences don't need to divide. We just should. Mm-hmm. Big thing, uh, big shift for me happened when I was under a Hindu teacher for five years. She was marvelous, and I learned a lot about Hinduism. And uh, but I learned to practice my own tradition and understand the others, mm-hmm. rather than practice the others and understand my own. 
Mm, mm. So I went into... Now, I, I asked if you would do, do with me this one dynamic before the end of our podcast. Oh, yes, yes. Okay, and this dynamic is to find out where your mind's eye is. Okay. Your mind's eye. Because that's the beginning of training. So I'd like for you to... Uh, now, just uh, shut your eyes just a minute. Okay. Now, take your mind's eye and notice my uh, tenor recorder, that beautiful wood from Germany. Okay, now bring your mind's eye back to church. You came to midday prayer with me and go in church in that big beech leaf uh, mm. decoration that is in our chapel. Now bring your mind's eye to CTS chapel chapel Mm -hmm. and okay now bring your mind's eye back here uh, to your computer now gently open your eyes now did you have any trouble shifting your mind's eye did you find ever those four places I found a part of all four places yeah okay now the eye meaning capital I is what shifted the EYE so the training is to get that agency mm-hmm. that you could shift your mind. So back to outrage, mm-hmm. you know, you would train your mind to shift from that outrage and slide it to your heart and uh, and in some prayer form or some mm-hmm. training, uh, you would ask for guidance. In other words, it's that I that shifts the EYE. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's the training. You know, so back, let's mm-hmm. just use the three degrees of silence. Observance, okay, I observe that my eyes are wide open, and I could see your eyes are wide open, and I could see you close them. That's an observance. But then the practice of silence was you uh, you let me guide your mind's eye. Mm-hmm. That was a meditation, really. Mm-hmm. I, could, I guided your mind's eye from one place to the other. Mm-hmm. Okay, then... The praxis would be, what were you thinking about while you were moving your eyes in the observance? Mm-hmm. So that's the training. Okay. Isn't that good? Mm, that's wonderful, yeah. Because that training can alleviate the suffering you have, and you can place that suffering someplace else. Mm-hmm. And, it, and it also, uh, it, it either mm, disentangles and dissipates, or it heals, or it... You know, you could transmute it, use that energy for service or whatever. So this training is in the... This is why you need solitude, silence, and the praxis. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How long does it does a practice like that typically last? Doing a, a well, the training kind of meditation of it, like that? Um, we just did it. Yeah, yeah. Again, there, and this is where we do need more teachers that can... Uh, two problems. One is, unless the teacher has the practice themselves, mm-hmm. they can't guide anybody else. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, again, what we decided to do in this podcast was not just talk about silence. We did it. Mm. We did it through the music. We did it through that little exercise. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. we needed teachers that have practiced and then able to, and then people to, to be willing enough. And then I'd say we need to stay in our own lanes. The Christian practices have an integrity all their own. The Zen practices, the yoga practices, mm-hmm. the uh, you know the Tai Chi practices. Mixing up all those practices mixes up the mind. 
So, you know, that's... And that's what you said, you had said earlier about understanding and pr- practicing Christianity while understanding other... That's correct. ...other ways. You know, like I have great uh, affinity and um, appreciation and even a pretty good understanding of some of those other traditions. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wrote a book on Islam some years ago because oh. I didn't think Catholics knew anything about mm-hmm. Islam, including myself. So mm-hmm. I wrote a book on it, That's a great. catechetical book with a Muslim. And mm-hmm. uh, But in any event, understand the other traditions, but we're very thin. The Christians are thin on practicing their own. Mm-hmm. And they even have a kind of an observance definition of practice, just going to Mass on Sunday. That is hardly enough, you know, because it doesn't train the mind. Right. You know. And thus all your work of uncovering these practices and, mm-hmm. the, and the core of these practices and the reasons right. why we do these practices. Right. Okay, I'm, I'm going to take a, a weird turn here real quick um, before we bring these guys in because I want to be sure, I do not want to forget to ask you this question because I've noticed... Just you were talking a lot about advocating for other women's monasteries and things like that. And on the podcast, we often speak about silencing and toxic silence. And um, and I wonder if you've had any experience with toxic silencing, both being a female writer or even a female, um, a woman in the religious life as opposed to a male in the religious life. If that's ever, if you've um, come across that. Well, I've had some censorship if that, okay. that would be, you know, like... Mm-hmm. And I'd also have pushback. I guess that makes you um, uh, equal with Merton, right? <laughs> yeah. Censorship? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I've had um, disbelief. I, I think, mm. well, if, if I could hazard another thing, people are not confident in the Christian tradition that, uh, it, that it's sturdy enough. They really mm. have... And if part of it is the sexual abuse pro- process. Part of it is... Uh, Christianity's been hijacked by, let's say, the prosperity gospel, mm. Um, mm-hmm. by you know evangelical mm-hmm. zealots and proselytizing and even triumphal kind of church. So again, the negativity to Christianity has outweighed this inner, uh, really love for Jesus and following the cross and being in a Christ consciousness that you really feel um, that God is rather than God is not, and that Jesus is, and mm-hmm. Jesus is with you and so a felt faith is lacking because the afflictions of the church Mm -hmm. have overtaken a lot of christians yeah 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 thank you guys do you want to join us sister meg thank you so much for sharing how the history of kind of the work of silence in the christian tradition has informed the work you do today you know, you mentioned the desert mothers and fathers, and you mentioned cash and uh, figures like that. And and I'm just really curious, you know, for those of us who are not cloistered, do you have just kind of any general advice for how, especially in the parish, but also in the home, you know, what are kind of the steps we need to be taking to cultivate a contemplative ethos in the church? I know that's a huge question. Forgive me for asking such a big question, but this is just something that is really on my heart. And I'm just curious, you know, based on your research and based on your work as a spiritual director, any thoughts you might have that you would want to share with us? 
Well, again, thanks for the question, and it's a good one. And the starting place is with yourself and your own thoughts. And um, again, uh, Cassidy's been down to Gethsemane a lot, and I've certainly been there so many times. When Merton taught his novices, he taught first the thoughts, the eight afflictive thoughts. And so thoughts matter is really, uh, you know, another incarnation of Merton's teaching to the novices based on Cassian. And so you need training in your thoughts. So sitting in stillness, any stillness, in the relationship, you know, the, the ambiance of before Christ, that's our faith. We never are without our faith. Actually, I know this is being recorded, but I just did a critique of mindfulness training yesterday for a group. And while it is excellent, it is not the Christian way. It is freestanding, and it is acting as if Jesus isn't there, as if God doesn't exist. And the Christians, we have this other energetics, which is God, which is Jesus. And so to start with your thoughts, and that's what prayer is, lifting up your thoughts to God. That's Evagoras, you know. So to, to then notice that your thoughts go here and there, but to cultivate some prayer practices that override the dysfunctional thoughts or to use the practices in thoughts and tools that would give you more agency, more control, more ability to, uh, to shift your thoughts to God, which is called prayer. And then in your married life, uh, find a place of solitude that creates that dynamic uh, for the two of you, you know, and and then keep that place sacred. That's a sacred place, and that that you, the two of you know what you're doing when you're doing it. It's not. It's an observance, and then in that observance you have that practice, and then if you follow the directives of thoughts and tools, you're shifting your mind. Again, um, wow! If you guys want to become teachers of this, it'd be okay with me. <laughs> Our conversation will return after this brief moment of silence. Please take a breath with us and join us for this 30 seconds of silence. And, and I have one more question and then uh, turn the mic over to, to Kevin. But um, I really appreciated your thoughts on comparative theology that you, you shared with Cassidy a few minutes ago, and uh, especially this kind of distinction between practice and understanding. That was very, very helpful. And maybe just a little bit challenging for me, I'm, I'm currently taking a meditation class at a Chan monastery here in Atlanta. And so I'm curious, you know, as somebody who has been drawn to interfaith work for so long, what, 
advice or or direction or or you know kind of rules of thumb would you give for a person who's drawn to that kind of interfaith conversation how do we draw the line between understanding and practice you know to to be very blunt you know am i making a mistake by taking a meditation class at a at a chan monastery and and if I'm not making a mistake still, how do I safeguard the integrity of my practice as a Christian? Okay, again, we're in this renaissance period where there's all this availability, and some of those teachers are just amazing, and they're good to know and to be with, and I certainly would not um, regret any of my time with these masters. However, I would say... No initiation. Take no initiation. That's the wrong direction. Okay. And if a parallel universe from Christianity comes your way, uh, get on that boat and start swimming in that stream uh, and become a teacher through Christ yourself, you know. Uh, again, there's they're doing their job. We just haven't done ours. That's That's very helpful. And in many ways, I think I've been drawn to learn about Buddhism and Buddhist practices, partially because of my admiration for people like Merton and B. Griffiths and, you know, folks like that, you know, and many of the Jesuits, but also kind of this recognition that my knowledge of my, I guess, my own work of silence I've run into kind of brick walls in the Christian world. It's kind of like you said this a few a few moments ago, that you know we have a dearth of teachers, and so you know there's a level on which, and this is the analogy I've used when I've led retreats, is that it's like the the Eastern contemplative traditions have almost given us a, a transfusion, but then the question becomes then how do we take kind of the skillful means that we have learned from other traditions, but then, I, I don't know better language to use, subject it to the light of Christ. So um, is that, is that, does that make sense? It makes a total sense. Carl, what we need is an RCIA in the Christian tradition contemplative. That's what we're trying to do at St. Thomas More in Decatur, Georgia. So, <laughs> so yeah. So I, I agree. And you know, it, it seems to me that that the idea of preparation for the sacraments really ought to be, and, and there's, you know, obviously RCIA is initiation, but initiation into the work of contemplation. So thank you. This is very validated. And you're just the right one to go ahead and write all that up and make it a catechetical moment. And, and, and it, it shouldn't be that hard because it's Christ Jesus working through us. Sure. Sure. Absolutely. I feel like you were just like knighted or ordained by Sister Madigan. Yeah. <laughs> you got your marching yeah. orders. Get to work. Yes, both of you, of course. Fran as yeah. well. Fran, you're just slightly off screen. That's why mm. I can only see half your face. There you are. So what's amazing about this, it, I, it was so lovely to hear you talk about discerning being on this podcast. Because uh, this is this is really—talk about a feeling called— We've circled around so many things that I think the three of us have been working on for so long. And specifically, I I have a theology degree, so I'm I'm basically ABD. I'm slowly drip 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 finishing that dissertation, and my area is in comparative theology, and my expertise of what I'm interested in is kind of 
ascetical, mystical, the contemplative, and how that's essential for us knowing Christ, knowing ourselves, knowing the world. And your books, Thoughts Matter especially, and a lot, all of them though, because uh, I have read them all. After you ticked them off, I realized I have read them all except the new one. Uh, all of that kind of points in this direction for me, and I've been struggling with this idea of, again, being a teacher. I don't want to just teach theology in a dogmatic way, but this, what we're talking about, is really what I want to teach and to, to develop this, you know, in ways for people. And what's interesting is the comparative theology method is exactly what you have been saying the whole way I was cheering, you know, that's uh, grounded in your tradition and yet so open to these others that, you know, that's really kind of how what my heart speaks. So I just want that's a long kind of thank you, really, before my question is just to say thank you. It feels like a, a confirmation of the direction I've been going for a while. So uh, you're, you're part of my discernment process. This is kind of a lovely sign here for me. And I want to thank you for that. But I guess my question, really specifically, do you think that in the teaching of this, you would just let us through an exercise of watching our mind's eye, etc. Do you think that technology, uh, such as a podcast, such as online courses, through social media, do you think there are ways that we can be contemplative in these methods and teachings? I've been currently struggling with how do I present this information to people online when I actually would like them to spend less time online and be quiet. So this interesting kind of dynamic of if my students are far away and I want to use technology on some level, but then I don't want to feed the process of I want them to be online. If you, I don't know if I'm being clear with my question, but uh, I'm trying to figure out what that balance looks like and if you had any insights into that. Well, it's in the category of paradox because that was part of my discernment. Why would I uh, chatter about silence? Mm -hmm. And when I was with uh, Thomas Keating those 10 years, you know, going back and forth to board meetings, I'd fly over Denver and I'd say, all this for silence? And I would just come from Snowmass to, to Indianapolis. You know, I'd say, this is just very expensive for one thing. <laughs> when I could stay home. I mean, here I am, home. Yeah. So... Um, but I would say to you, Kevin, that this is the question. I think uh, this is a skillful means, but we don't know how to use it yet. And it needs complete discernment. Again, back to this critique I did of something yesterday, I cautioned them about indiscriminate assimilation. Indiscriminate assimilation from the culture or from, and I had another term there. But the skillful means is discriminate assimilation. You know, and I like the three words that I came upon in the 90s, to retrieve, reclaim, and reappropriate. And it seems like uh, we can get the tradition reacclaimed, but what you guys are doing is reappropriating the means. So what is appropriate? And, and uh, you know from your scripture studies, uh, that's a very technical term to appropriate. It means, well, you tell me what it means. No. To, to reappropriate? Just the word appropriate in scripture, to appropriate something in scripture. It's a technical term in hermeneutics. Oh, let me just tell you what it is. Well, go, go ahead. Well, I was going to say the way I've understood that is that appropriate is to uh, 
to take something and to make it your own without twisting it and manipulating it. So you're receiving it accurately and allowing the spirit of the text and God to work through, you know, what's happening through scripture without you breaking it. That's kind of the way I use it to talk about it with myself. Uh, you're better than Ricoeur. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, the second naivete kind of thing, you know, that you're trying to talk about, right. Well, okay. It means making it your own. The problem in scripture, the people were just observing and they're doing the first two levels, but they didn't appropriate it in their realization would be the Hindu word for this, realization, have it realized in you. So obviously what you have to figure out, and I could be of service, but um, how to help people realize this content through these appropriate means or appropriate it uh, rather than indiscriminate addiction. If this is just one more addiction, more chattering, and even... Um, yeah, here's here's something that I've uh, had have to have to sort out myself. One thing that is not according to renouncing your thoughts of yourself is all this storytelling. It's mm -hmm. all about you. It's also self-centered. So how to shift these very self-centered times, this uh, narrative and chatting and superficial, you know, like uh, Teresa Lizier, she she didn't she really doesn't tell about her mystical experiences because it's like perfume it gets away, mm. and so notice I didn't say anything either, because it uh, it's just too personal, and so how to use these intimate intimate devices yeah. and be appropriate and you know let the Holy Spirit speak through us with this content, and my own direction for this would be uh, stay focused on our mission. Our mission is for others to, to reduce pain and violence and healing. Mm -hmm. you know, so if we can use these skillful means for the sake of others' suffering. Right. That reminds me of Pedro Arupe, to, you know, talking to the Jesuits that, that we should live for others. You know, and and you know, I mean, he was using gendered language: be men for others, but be mm -hmm. men or women for others. That uh, that's really part of our mission in Christ, absolutely. So, see, and I think what's happened in the media, it's gone too too self-centered in that direction. So all we have to do is pause and reverse it. How's that? Mm. <laughs> that sounds lovely. That sounds like quite the easy task. Yeah, I'll get right on it. <laughs> Yeah, let's let's knock that one out before dinner. Right? Yeah. <laughs> no, that's not how discernment works. It's much slower than that. <laughs> but let me give you a, a hint, though, that of why this isn't going to be that hard. Uh, we're not doing it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So we just have to do right effort toward God and be open and supple. You know, there was a big conference in Ireland, oh gosh, I don't know, 40, 50 years ago. The contemplatives got together and they say, well, what's the most important thing about the contemplative life? And they came up with two words. You have to be supple, supple, and be attuned to the subtle. Yes, subtle. So again, you guys can work out subtly, how do you shift this? and be supple enough to shift it in that other direction. And Christ takes it. The Holy Spirit takes it. We just have to be available. Mm -hmm. So, well, Fran has never been on the podcast before. So, so hello, Encountering Silence listeners. This is my, my beautiful wife, Fran McCollman. And 
she has been enjoying this conversation with Sister Meg. and I... It's been wonderful. But one question that I think is always asked on the podcast is about a person's silence heroes. Who are your silence heroes? You know, I saw that question, and honestly, the only um, experience that comes close to the heroic would be my time at Glencairn Monastery, the Trappistines in Waterford County, Ireland. Mm. And uh, the degree of silence that they have uh, after office, just sitting. When you're in a chapel with them, in my house, everybody's got a book or something. They're, there's nobody with a book. They're just sitting, simply sitting in that beautiful, pure silence after that chanting with those Irish lilting voices. So as far as a place uh, that has embodied uh, silence, I, I tasted it there. Um, I've just given this talk on five cups of coffee. Do you want to hear that? Yeah. Okay, it's five cups of coffee where I experienced God. Okay, and I just did this Saturday for doctors, physicians. Mm -hmm. And I had a cello player with me, and actually she should be your next podcast. Yeah. Um, you know, she played a Bach prelude first. And um, anyway, that was lovely. And then I said, you know, um, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the calming God, healing God, holding God, that's the Trinity. But I had experienced it through five cups of coffee. And the first cup of coffee was down in Mepkin Abbey. You've been there? Mm -hmm. Yes, and yes. I was just there two weeks ago. Where we all have to drink our coffee together next to the refectory there. Right. And you can't take your coffee cup to the to the to your room right. and run across the cloister with your coffee. And so I was giving a retreat. And the first day I resented it. I said, nobody messes with my coffee. I said, these boys are taking uh, the monastic practices way too seriously. And then the second day, I just sat there and drank the coffee. The third day, I actually listened to the birds wake up. The third day, I noticed who else was in the room. The fourth day, I actually tasted silence. And I brought that back home with me. So that's one cup of coffee. Second cup of coffee was in uh, San Anselmo in Rome. It's a Benedictine college or a seminary. And we reported to Rome, the monastic dialogue board. So we had to go to Rome and give these reports. Anyway, I sometimes stayed at that place and sometimes down the, the mountain in a, another place. And I'd trudge up and there'd be these great big wooden doors. I'd get into that refectory, three big cauldrons, one of hot water, one of coffee, and one of milk. And you drink out of cereal bowls in, in Italy, but, you, but the solid feel of drinking that in the wee hours of the morning in silence, both hands on that coffee, starting my day, going to the Vatican, that was... The third cup of coffee was in uh, Cochabamba, Bolivia. Now, in Bolivia, there's the Andes Mountains, 30,000 feet, and then around Cochabamba, there's 9,000, 6,000. Then Santa Cruz and the Amazon is sea level. But in uh, Bolivia, um, there's not coffee brewing. It's coffee essence. And because of the altitude, depending on how high you are, uh, you know, it takes a long time to boil that water. So you have the smell of the essence, and then you add the water. But the big uh, healing God is the bread that's baked in those brick open ovens with that fresh butter and then that coffee essence in that mountain air. 
The fourth cup of coffee, you like this? I love it. Fourth cup of coffee it was in Norway. I was uh, teaching there, and I was actually living in Ireland, so I had to go to, what, Standham, and then Oslo, and then Trotham. And anyway, these nuns picked me up at the airport. Now, lest you think this is exotic, all these nuns are from Chicago. <laughs> <laughs> okay, then, so I was at this uh, Cistercian monastery in Norway on a fjord, and every morning... You could see the, the sea would be white, churning, and, and feisty. Next morning, as clear as glass. Third morning, shot through with this shaft of light. Fourth morning. So I don't remember the coffee, but I remember being totally in the earth with the water. Now, the fifth cup of coffee, this is it. You're, you're being so patient. Fifth cup of coffee is in that monastery at Glen Karen. And it's a 200-acre farm, and those nuns are beautiful. There's about 30 of them in the white habits and everything. And so now in Ireland, half of the nuns drink tea. So there's just a hot pot. There's a, you can put your coffee or your tea. But what was so special is yeah, I made my coffee or sometimes tea, and then there was the homemade bread, the homemade butter, the homemade jams and jellies with that fresh cup of coffee in the wee hours of the morning. Uh, but more than that, in the refectory there, they sit on benches, and you're sitting in a meditation posture with no back, so you're relaxed and alert in the morning air uh, with that cup of coffee and the fresh bread, fresh butter, fresh milk, fresh jams and jelly. And so I have experienced God through five cups of coffee. Amen. Mm. Amen. And then the cellist plays some more music. Thank you. That was wonderful. It was a privilege for me to. I, I must admit, I often speak, but I'm seldom received. <laughs> so thank you. Oh. We we loved it. Yes, I think we were all already fans of your of your work, Sister mm -hmm. Meg. So it has just really been a privilege and a delight mm -hmm. to hear you and to watch you and to listen to you play. This has really been lovely. Thank you so much. I'm Cassidy Hall. To learn more about me, please visit CassidyHall.com. I'm Kevin Johnson. To find out more about my work, visit my website, KevinMichaelJohnson.com. I'm Carl McCollman. My website is CarlMcCollman.com. Please visit the podcast website, at EncounteringSilence.com. There, you can learn more about each of our episodes and find links to purchase books and other resources we discuss on the podcast. By making a purchase through our website, the podcast receives a small affiliate commission from Amazon.com. Also, to learn more about how you can be a part of our circle of supporters, visit Patreon.com slash EncounteringSilence. This way, you can share in our efforts to bring meaningful conversations about silence to our all-too-noisy world.